Bienvenidos. That's California for welcome to the February 15th edition of National Review's Radio Free California podcast. I'm Will Swain, president of the California Policy Center. You can find my colleagues and me at CaliforniaPolicyCenter.org. You can find my friend and co-host David Bonson right here. Thank the Lord. He's an economist and author, the host of the Capital Record podcast and the founder of the eponymous investment firm, The Bonson Group. Hello, David. Hello, Will. How are you, my friend? I'm good, buddy. Hey, uh, you sent me a couple of days ago story. Uh, Knights, squires, queens go on strike at California medieval times. Um, there was so much to unpack in this story. And then, of course, we find out that uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are, uh, here's the headline from the Daily Beast, they're in a standoff with the royals ahead of King Charles' coronation, royals striking all over the place. Let's start with the uh, the union, the, the attempt to unionize and strike at medieval times in Buena Park. Mm. Um, I am so old. Are there, there were... other medieval times? Yes, they, uh, they're apparently a, a national kind of deal. They, yeah, like... but like, are there a lot? I, I don't know if there's a lot, but I do know that in the story that you sent me, it mentions that they are actually in Buena Park, which is in North Orange County. They're pulling in medieval times actors, whatever you call them, support staff from Arizona, which I guess is the, I think it's Tucson is the closest one. So, um, yeah, so we've got a strike at medieval times. You and I both... I, Medieval times is. There's become, only one person, one character, like one hat being worn of who should go on strike in medieval times. Who's that? And that is any God fearing person that would have to go as a customer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's the most hideous place on earth. I have been there. What is worse, the show, which is completely, totally unimpressive and uninteresting, or the food, which is inedible, or the people around you who are disgusting? <laughs> You know that the, you bring, I said this to you because it was a union point, and now we go here, and then I'm being candid because I like to be really authentic with our listeners, and you know I just you and I share everything with each other. But I think people are listening right now, going, oh, "This guy's kind of a snob." But the thing is, is it's not being a snob. It before I was more moneyed than I am, I knew medieval times was disgusting, <laughs> and. Medieval times is not cheap. But that's because despite the fact you didn't have money, you had a mouth with taste buds. And the people that go there, you look around and you're like, how are they here? It's not like it's a cheap thing. No. It's sort of like Benihana, mm -hmm. where it in the 70s and 80s was this really cool innovation and was quite an experience. And probably the food was better then, and it just has gone downhill over time after like four sales to different mm -hmm. private equity firms and consolidations and things. And and yet the price point is huge because people will pretty much pay whatever. They have unlimited pricing power and are not remotely food conscious. But then you look, I just don't have ever have the impression that the people there are generally eating at that price point, mm -hmm. right? And yet it's it's hideous food and medieval times is a hideous experience in all counts and the idea that their employees are unionized and now on strike i am speechless about the, this the the uh you had an experience there and and i'll say that when i went there it was largely uh, what's the literary term parodic that is a parody that we went there as a family to take our then very young son, I think he was probably six or seven, and of yeah. course at that age infatuated with knights and swords and that sort of thing. Uh, and dry chicken. Uh, oh my gosh, the food. Uh, I, I prefer I bring, my, I bring my own salt and pepper. <laughs> <laughs> you, know I mean? you bring your own chicken? Yeah. Just, 
Um, yeah, so you went. And we then, went, and it was, um, you know, it, again, if you're a child, it's probably one of the most, like, I, I'll bet if I asked my 37-year-old son if he remembers that, he probably remembers that in greater detail than a lot of what he went Fondly. through. Fondly. Fondly. No, I got a contrarian view. Please, tell me. I brought my son, and he was all excited, and he fell asleep in the car on the way home, and he had like four buddies with him. It was like his five-year-old party, maybe six. Right. He just turned 18 yesterday. My son's how he go adult. If I were to bring up Medieval Times right now, I think he would go like, oh, yeah, that was disgusting. Oh, wow. But remember, I've tried to raise them as snobs. But I'm, not, I'm not saying my 37-year-old- I'm, I'm just kidding. I, I know you are. But my, my 37-year-old wouldn't say he wanted to go back there. He's very he much like He had like a you. good memory of it. He has a good memory. Family, friends, people shouting, you know, off with his head, that kind of stuff. When you're six or seven, that's probably really thrilling. Yeah, but remember, too, when your kid was six or seven, and even to lesser degree, my kid was six or seven- these kids now are harder to please with the, like that show is a little less impressive now compared to what CGI mm. will do. And mm-hmm. some of the animation, the movies, the like the live entertainment world has gotten, has upped its game a little. Yeah. But where you can, I'm uh, even Benny Hanna to use that example. The guy's cutting up the chicken with, right the knives. You, with knives in front now of Now I bring my kids. They don't even, they don't even look. <laughs> They're just like, this is, they don't, like, There's a dangerous stranger yeah. with knives, dad. Yeah, that's normal. Um, but you know, where else, but medieval times can you get, you can't get this on a game. The smell of death. roasted, whatever that chicken is, death and manure in the same place. You just no, don't, you can't. where do no. you get that? Well, right. Maybe a Betty Hanna. <laughs> <laughs> uh, God bless our friends at Medieval Times. Um, in related news, as I mentioned... Uh, now, the, what union is that, by the way? I would like to... Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, I do think it's said. It wasn't an SEIU thing, right? No. It was, yeah. No, they ne- are... Nietzsche. Oh, jeez. Uh, the American Guild of Variety Artists. Yeah, of course. Yeah. That, of course that exists. Yeah. Oh, my. So uh, what do you do? What is the process by which you sign up at that union? What do you uh, what are you gonna do in your life, son? Well, I really want to be a gilded variety the- artist thing. Well, you're gonna have to join the. But but it is appropriate in keeping with the name Medieval Times that it's a guild. It's oh, not listed that, as a union. Yeah, I think there's uh, that's, that's right. on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, then we've got uh, our neighbors uh, to the north of Los Angeles. That's uh, Prince Harry and Meghan. So you're Markle. gonna you're, this is a thing now because they're in Calabasas. You're gonna make oh every time I get a chance. You yeah. you believe Harry and Meghan are now a California story. I, I, not not invariably, but sure. Yeah, why not? Um, just like I do believe that Elon Musk is still a California story or When we Oracle drive by, or, well, Elon Musk is an important person. <laughs> Elon Musk is the wealthiest man in the world. Uh-huh. Elon Musk is the CEO of arguably two of the most technologically significant companies in the world. Tesla's one. Harry I and Meghan are just two complete nobodies. But here's here's why this is a, a a contemporary story, not just a California story, but a contemporary story. The, tonight, you and I are recording Wednesday morning. Tonight. Uh, it is widely speculated that South Park will finally give, talk about medieval times, the full roasting of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. And the the title of the episode, which we do know, is called The Worldwide Privacy Tour. You'll understand mm-hmm. immediately the irony there. Um, these are people who moved to California ostensibly because they want out of the the limelight in, in London. They want to get out of the English tabloid press thing. They want to escape. And then the first thing they do is... Well, and also the racism. That's right, the racism. Yes. But the, but then that's an interesting thing for a woke, wokey-woke, because one of their key tenets is the racism of our country. Yes, so what they have to argue is we left the racism to come to racism. That's right. 
But I, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Aren't ra- aren't the people who want to get away from racism? Don't they usually want to go to a non-racist place? You would think, yeah. But so, so I guess you know my my point in just in defending the idea that there is a California story here. They they chose California among all the places in the world they could have gone, including Canada, where they briefly uh, landed to think about staying. And then, of course, we know they stayed with. It wasn't Dr. Dre, was it? They stayed with somebody who was. Uh, uh, no, 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 no. Who was it? It was um, it was the movie guy. Um, oh, Brian, who are we talking about? The, the he's the biggest black movie director in the world. Oh, oh yes. Perry. Tyler, yeah, Tyler Perry. Perry, Tyler yeah. Perry. And I got to just footnote quickly, we Brian We are tells supposed us, to know that right away. That's not good. That's why Brian's here. And There's Brian, a lot of white directors I wouldn't remember right away also. I don't right. want anyone to think there was a thing. A that, race thing there. I know uh, Spike but, Lee. Mm-hmm. I know John Singleton is a USC grad. That's right. I like, can I say that one of my favorite movies is Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing to this day? The problem is that that was the only good movie he made. <laughs> <laughs> that Spike Lee is a talented filmmaker who has such a, prob, a troubled relationship with the truth. Mm. But Do the Right Thing was a great movie. Yeah. I John Singleton, I like more. I think Boys in the Hood was a yeah. master, masterpiece of a movie. Yeah. Masterpiece. So uh, they, they chose to land here, uh, Harry and Meghan did. Um, then they promptly begin promoting themselves, and their entire Netflix series takes place in a rented mansion um, overlooking the ocean. We talked about that. Um, it's on Netflix, California Company. Uh, South Park is a, of course, you know, because of production stuff. South Park is made, built right here. A friend of mine used to work, I don't know if he still does, is a general counsel to those guys, uh, you know, who would alter their scripts up to the time the show was airing. They'd be rewriting the script at the back end of the show to accommodate uh, legal concerns. Long story short, I, I, you know, to some extent, this is this is California. We, we amplify messages of wokeism, and then you've got South Park with its critique. So uh, California story just, uh, you know, by the time this show comes out, I think South Park will already be up, and we'll know whether all of this was for nothing. Um, <clears throat> hey, I wanted to... I, um, I care about Harry and Meghan in a way that very few people could uh, relate to. Tell me. Which is with, with, with an utter um, apathetic disdain. Mm-hmm. And the problem I have now that's different than it was when it started. First, it was just their sheer audacity and hypocrisy and unlikability and dishonesty and whatnot, classlessness, talentlessness. I can go on and on. And then Netflix for willing to monetize them and give them money for something. Both things bother me, but I'm a market guy. All right, well, these two are going to freely exchange, and Mm -hmm. Netflix wants to pay them, and they want to take it and do their thing, and it's just I don't have to watch. But the fact that I understand people did watch disgusts me. I'm I'm now feeling more... A shame for having brought it up. So I don't know if that was your mission, but I really Not, do. Like, no, it's just, I just um, I I think that they are a good foil for the point you're making, and the hypocrisy and the this notion of pri- being as privileged as they are, and then talking about how they're victims. And I think we've already talked about that before. Yeah. That um, being a victim used to be something you tried to avoid branding right. yourself yeah. as, and now and now you just that's run a point to of pride. It. Yeah, but these two are just the worst. 
the worst. And I'm also intrigued because even in my normal life, I will run across people, family functions, neighborhood gatherings, even outside my church one day, people who just really are infatuated with royal news. And I'm, despite my family's uh, pronounced uh, Angla, what is that, Anglophilia, um, my grandfather was from the UK and I have family there still, but I'm not just not interested in the royals per se, but I am interested in the fact that Americans sometimes really want to be ruled. And I'm thinking here of, I think you and I have talked about this on the show before. Second Samuel, is that it? Uh, 16-7. The people wanted a king. Yeah. And And that's, of course, not uh, uniquely American. In that case, it was the Israelites, but it is a story of human autonomy that whenever people choose to abandon the rule of God, they inevitably rule to some, they move to some other ruler, and uh, the state becomes a substitute God. And this is a very theological and evergreen point. And that's there, there are stories throughout here that I want to talk about. And we'll get to some of those in just a moment. But let me just get rid of some of the quick headlines here. Culver City uh, yesterday, I believe it was, voted to adopt a uh, camping ban. Mm. And um, <clears throat> finally. I'm, well, here's what's interesting about it, David, that you and I talked about the fact that Karen Bass becomes mayor of L.A. and she's running on a I'm going to eliminate homelessness kind of thing. And right after she's elected in November, uh, the city has a kind of homelessness or a homeless memorial day. We didn't talk about this at the time. It was in December, I want to say. And you didn't send this link. No, I didn't. No. I'm just going to. I did send you the, the camping ban, which I'll come back to. I promise. I don't see the camping ban. Oh, I'm sorry, man. That's weird. Um, here, take that one. But um, listeners, you should know that uh, the reason it's a little surprising I can't find it is that he only sent me thirty links, <laughs> thirty stories, and this is one that we're talking about right now that he didn't send. Can we pause so I can have a sip of water really quickly? No, just don't, don't say anything. Just don't Stop be, be, right now. Get the water down. Okay, good. Thank but you. Pretend, pretend it's just a nice, smooth bite of food from a medieval. <laughs> Just a little puree of vegetables right there. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Deep breath, sweating. Um, I don't even know what I was talking about. Uh, Oh, so Culver City camping. Karen Bass, mayor, December. Culver City passed a rule banning camping. (laughs) Yes, but in which is very similar to a rule I passed in my own family (laughs) before I ever got married. Uh, Will and I are enjoying this too much. Listeners are probably... I'm so sorry. All right. Uh, Karen Bass, what does she have to do with Culver City? Well, remember, she runs on a, I'm going to eliminate homelessness in, I think it was four years or six years or something like that, sort of like, I'm going to get reelected and it'll take me a little longer, but I'll get rid of this. I'll get rid of the homeless problem. So in December, she hosts, the city hosts, and she's there, a massive memorial for the 1,200 homeless people who died in the previous year. Kind of like the Academy Awards, except, you know, these are people stepping out of tents and into their early graves. It's Mm -hmm. it's horrific to think about. Nobody shows up. I mean, it is like almost unattended. It yeah. is a, a hollow sound. Um, and yet, behind the scenes, she's ordering some pretty, you know, for the left, draconian, for you and me perhaps more sensible uh, initiatives to end public camping. That is homelessness on the streets and permanent settlements. I don't need to tell people what that looks like. Uh, but the fact is that when the L.A. does this, its neighbors suffer. 
Santa Monica steps in. Now Culver City steps in with a camping ban. And of course, the progressive left is saying, you're just outlawing, you're, you're just making it illegal to be poor. How outrageous. Their, and their, their response, to the Culver City City Council, is so tame, so tentative. They're, they're, they, the, first of all, as the LA Times reports it, a bitterly divided city council voted 3-2 to approve the ordinance. Oh, it was approved on Monday. Um, but they say they won't ban, they won't enforce the ban until several key goals are met. Now, this is everything. Okay, so, so you you can't camp if you're a family in a campground. That's right. But if you're homeless, you can camp. That's correct. But they're not going to force it on the until some criteria are met, which would be the homeless criteria. That's, cr- that's correct. So yeah. it's a designated safe camping site with support services and the conversion of 73 units into housing through Project Home Key, which has not worked. Um, so in other words, there's a huge fight over whether you should enforce a camping ban, but everybody agrees it won't be enforced, whether the, if the proponents and opponents all agree we're not going to enforce this thing, but that they must. Here's, here's what's fascinating. One of the city council members says the city was forced to accelerate its approach to the homeless crisis because the neighboring city of Los Angeles is taking a more aggressive approach to the problem. L.A. Mayor Karen Bass declared a state of emergency on homelessness in her first day in office in December. Culver City followed suit with his own declaration in early um, Uh, January. Uh, Quote from a city council member, a fear of mine is if we don't have all the tools in place to help our own unhoused and Los Angeles already have the enforcement along our borders, then those who refuse housing in L.A. will just cross the street into Culver City, further straining our resources. Yes. Uh, The same could be said, of course, of California itself, that we refuse to enforce immigration uh, at the border. We refuse to do all kinds of things. We impose policies which then push people into neighboring states. And that, my brother, is why I wanted to also mention top of the news here. here. Uh, Utah governor tells Californians, stay in California instead of coming here as refugees. I joked on Twitter that things have gotten so bad for Utah that even Mormons won't answer their door when California comes knocking. Um, The governor was meeting, pardon me, at the... um, National Governors Association annual winter meeting at the White House. Uh, the, guy, the guy's name here, pardon me, Spencer Cox is the Republican. He's a governor of U- the governor of Utah. And uh, he says yeah. here, uh, this last census confirmed Utah is the fastest growing state over the past 10 years. Our biggest problems are growth related. We would love for people to stay in California instead of coming as refugees to Utah. Okay, so what do you think about this? Um well, I think a bunch of things. Dealing with water and housing supply issues. Okay, that's not true. Go ahead. Uh, I mean, you can always build more housing. They have plenty of dirt, and they should build more yeah. housing. They got water. This governor's a genius. Talk to me. Easiest way in the world for a single person to get someone of the opposite sex attracted to him <laughs> is to act like you don't have any interest. <laughs> Hard to get. I mean, is this the oldest play You really in the book? think so? It's, it's oh, a yeah. reverse psychology. Californians don't come. They're coming. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're going to up your house price 100 grand every minute. I, I, Let me tell you something. Of course he wants Californians. And it, they're not saying the thing of, like, before the idea of, for like, don't bring your liberal stuff to our red state. Mm-hmm. They're not blue state Californians going to Utah. There are some younger people in technology that, you know, there's so many cool tech companies that have come up in Salt Lake and Park, Park yeah. City. For the most part, this has always been my theory, it's at best purple families and more often red families 
or just simply ideologically agnostic families who are priced out or right. crimed out or schooled out or coveted out of living mm-hmm. in a blue state. Mm-hmm. For the most part, the people going to Phoenix were more red and purple types. Phoenix or Salt Lake? And I'm, Arizona, Phoenix. Nevada, mm-hmm. Texas, mm-hmm. and then now applying it to Utah. Okay. So this governor saying this is trolling in a sense. And then there's a, a, almost like maybe a way to get a little publicity as a hard to get. But no, I don't think he's actually saying please stay. I think he's. I, th- I think it's genius. I love your thinking. Yeah. Uh, I, you and I, you may rec- rem- remember this a year and a half ago or so. I, my my wife and I drove up to Montana to stay with family, and I popped out of the, popped off the road into a hotel to do a podcast from. I think I was in Idaho at the time. Pardon me, Idahoans. You were in Idaho, yeah. And we had just driven through Salt Lake the day before, and it is like driving through Southern California now. Oh yeah. In yeah. in the sense that it's just endless back to back suburbs that are you know cheek by jowl with other suburbs. You get to Salt Lake City. Uh, well, and I don't know if you watched that show Yellowstone or not. Um, it's funny because it's one of the most popular shows in the history of television, and it's really not very good. Hmm. But it's like people love it. And I found it unwatchable. Yeah, just kind of. I, I think it's it's. I, but I a lot of like the people that say they don't like it often are like lefties saying, "Oh, it's too woke or too." Hmm. But um, I just sort of thought, like, eh, I don't know, like. Uh, you got to protect the ranch, and we're just killing everybody. Mm-hmm. There's just so much killing. Yeah, a lot of killing. And it's like, look, I love your ranch. You got you don't have to keep killing people. Just kind of <laughs> just run a ranch. You know, like it's not it's not that deep, man. What you, Did I, Alec Baldwin shoot anybody on that show? There, was, there is so much death on this show. Yeah. And so, anyways, Kevin Costner's great. He's the it. same exact thing in every episode. Yes. He's just Gritty. taking some deep breaths. Yeah. And looking out at the ranch, drinking his either coffee in the morning or whiskey at night, and just thinking like, I remember when my granddad said to save this ranch, and and I'm like, just mow the lawn and hire some. Like what? You're, but the whole theme that in this last season, which I think they're in like the halfway point of the season, is the hostility to Californians that want to come to Montana and buy vacation homes. Mm. And um, I've gone through this recently with a client where I did not realize that the French side of Switzerland is aggressively hostile against Americans buying second homes Mm. in in Switzerland, where the German side is very friendly to it. Mm. And there's a belief that they're right, the culture changes, the personality Mm -hmm. changes, and that they're using economics to keep it from happening. Like, if you're a foreigner, we're going to have an extra task, Mm -hmm. a tax. And now Montana supposedly wants, there's people who want, uh, and this is true in Salt Lake, too. Let's keep out-of-state refugees from coming in by saying, if you're coming from out-of-state, we're going to have an extra tax. That's a little easier to do if it's a second home because you have to declare in your federal return mm-hmm, how mm-hmm. you're classifying residents. But if you get in a station wagon, you know, metaphorically, and show up um, and you claim, no, I'm moving here, I don't know how they can punish you for I that. I think so, yeah. But other than maybe the governor saying, please don't come. Yeah. But no, trust me. The economics of Florida, Idaho, Utah, and Texas, uh, Texas and Nevada, and any other state that's been a net beneficiary mm-hmm. of the poorly run states of our great union, uh, they are perfectly happy well, to have the refugees. And, and one more state here, Tennessee, uh, the, the oh, well, headline like, of the story, the California to Franklin pipeline of the conservative massive. elite. 
Um, I'll just pop that in the show notes. Of the conservative elites. Yes. Well, it's it's from a lefty newspaper called the Nashville Scene, which is part of the Association of Alternative News Weeklies. You know, that's the and I I used to work alongside the folks from Nashville Scene. In fact, for a brief time, we were all part of the same Village Voice Media company when I was running OC Weekly. Uh, So their columnist just says like basically like, hey, you you crazy California conservatives coming here, and she's sort of protesting the arrival of. Folks who uh, like in and out, uh, you know, the Southern California, in fact, Orange County based uh, hamburger joint, uh, which for some people's money is the best fast food hamburger in the world. Um, that's like the Whataburger of California. And, and if she- anyone doesn't say in and outs is the best hamburger of all the sort of smart burger, mm-hmm. you know, uh, elevated fast food type burgers, if somebody says that there's something better than in and out, they just haven't ever had an in and out burger. And you've traveled a lot. So have you had oh, like yeah. I love Shake Shack and I love Habit Burger. I love Five Guys. I love all of them because I love burgers. And who mm-hmm. doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. In and out's the best. And this is one of those Michael Jordan things. Like if you want to sit around talking about LeBron versus. Kobe or Kobe versus Magic or the uh, Larry Bird. Ver- we mm-hmm. can do all the second mm-hmm. and third place talks mm-hmm. at the bar all night. Right. Number one's Jordan, and if you don't know that, you don't. You're not. <laughs> you don't belong in the conversation. <laughs> and in and out's the best. So we've having established that. Um, here's the the sort of the nut graph for the columnist. I'm delighted by all the conservative Californians coming here. Baffled but delighted. They're always claiming that their need to leave California proves what I. Sh- yeah. I'm- Shitty place? I'm so sorry I said that word, but it's in here. What a lousy place California is, but then they get here and it's all, of course I'll pay $500,000 for a house that 10 years ago cost $150,000. And you know what you all need? All the restaurants I liked in California. So um, she says, you know, if, if you're yeah, going to come here. nothing people hate more than having their asset prices go up. Yeah, it's terrible for oh, them, isn't man. it? Shameful. So, um, hey, let's talk about uh, other big news here, and that'll lead to what I think is the conversation that I've baited you uh, with today that I, you know, I was trying to lure you out of your office to talk about something with me here. We'll come to Ro Khanna and an interview that he did. When I say that name fast, it sounds like a television device. Ro Khanna! or a Japanese restaurant where they chop the food up in front of you. Um, Senator Dianne Feinstein says she's finally going to retire. Um, and with that, you know, the, the flag has dropped and the race is well and truly on. Um, she, there was some speculation, David, that she might hang out until after her term ends. In other words, she'd run for election again in 2024 and then retire almost immediately, resign almost immediately, giving whoever the governor is at that point, likely Gavin Newsom, um, who knows, the opportunity to replace her, to appoint her replacement. Uh, But now that's all gone. She's done. She's resigned. And as I say, the flag has dropped. Now, just before that announcement, though, Katie Porter came out and says, and here's the headline, Representative Katie Porter says governor should keep promise to choose a black woman to fill Feinstein's seat. So all of them are thinking about this model, that Feinstein will stay through her next election. She'll win. She'll retire. And when when she leaves her seat vacant, the governor will replace her. And Newsom had said he would, if it were his opportunity, he would replace Feinstein's vacancy. He would fill Feinstein's vacancy with a black woman. Why is Katie saying it if Diane's not leaving the seat? Well, she was saying it at a time when there was some speculation about as speculation about what she would do if she res, if she announces a retirement now, then the flag drops, the race is on for 2024. But if she doesn't, there was this hypothesis, a speculation that maybe she was just waiting to allow the governor of California to to fill that seat with a black woman. Uh, but now 
you know, that's all, all bets are off. But Katie Porter comes yeah. out just like days before Feinstein's announcement and says that the governor should definitely, if that's what happens, if Feinstein runs again and, and wins and then resigns, that the governor should absolutely fill that seat with a a black woman. Yeah. Uh, so here she says, um, I think there's a reality that we need more diversity of voices in our Congress. We need more people with different kinds of experiences. And that means we do need more black people in the Senate. We need more black women in particular. Well, reporters asked her immediately, hey, uh, we can't help noticing you're white. So what's what the deal? what did she say? She says, well, I have a track record for fighting for the very kinds of issues that make a difference in the lives of black Americans and black communities. Awesome. Um, so is that what she meant was he should appoint someone who's going to fight for blacks? No. She said she should, he should, the governor should, whoever yeah. the governor is, I don't, appoint a black I woman. don't want to evaluate this for the hypocrisy of it. I want to evaluate it for the politics of it. What Please. the hell is she doing? Why would she walk into this? I don't know why she would do this. I mean, this is not inductive reasoning senior year. I mean, this is like five-year-olds can get this. It's really, I mean, especially for a woman who constantly- He should should appoint a black woman, means a black woman should be that senator. That's right. I'm running for the Senate, I'm not a black woman, means that the first premise and second premise do not align. They're in conflict. And she said- she says, I'll yeah, fight for black people. Black, uh, yeah, I'll fight for black people. Yeah, I have a fine. track record of doing that. And black Americans. I would like to know what that track record is. By sure. The way. Black Americans do not get people helping them with issues like healthcare, housing, with cre- being cheated by scam artists. I don't know what that I means. I think by scam artists, she's referring to professors who get a discount on housing. Yes. When they're no longer employed by the university. And who say, on the one hand, that a black woman should fill the seat I'm seeking, right? Um, those are some of the fights I've taken on. A, she says this is so bravely. A terribly unlikable human being. She she gets less likable. It's it's hard to think of a case in my own life where somebody just becomes more and more repellent until finally I just say I'm done with you. But so it let's see, who would the black woman be most likely to be appointed if Diane Feinstein were to re- be removed? I've got to think it's probably. Karen Bass. Uh, Karen Bass is one. Barbara Lee is the oh, other name that keeps God. coming up. I know. I, he, I don't. I, I don't know if he would do that. You know Barbara Lee's claim to fame. Tell me. The only member of the United States Congress who voted not to invade Afghanistan to look for Osama bin Laden. Wow, I did not remember. Four hundred thirty-four to one. Wow. Ron Paul voted for it. <laughs> <laughs> And I wrote a piece. I've shared this before. You probably don't remember. No, please. Um, back, remember what happened right after uh, 9-11 and our, about mm-hmm. um, five week later, maybe six week later invasion, which was, you know, at the time predicated on going, the Taliban refused mm-hmm. to Turn aid and it was to go get Muammar. And we, at that point, rightly in my mind, concluded mm-hmm. that the Taliban and Al-Qaeda were co-conspirators right. in an act of war against mm-hmm. the United States of America. And then there was these anthrax attacks yes. that were going on. And they went right. on for some time, and there were a couple of different suspects and things, and there were uh, various copycats. Mm-hmm. But it was a genuine terrorizing moment. Right. There because there were some that were real, some that were fake, and there were people <laughs> dying, and they ended up, you know, whatever. And at the time, they thought it might still be an extension of the jihadist mm-hmm. war on America. And I wrote a piece suggesting that when Barbara Lee voted against it, that maybe she volunteered to open the mail for the United, mm. the United States <laughs> Congress. <laughs> some and people, she did it, right? Some people did not like that idea. They thought I was a little out of line. 
Uh, well, I think it's totally fair. But, um, you know, going back to that time, I just remember we were at the Weekly. We were reporting on the weird conflation on the left. Now, keep in mind, the Weekly was a lefty paper, but we noticed that progressives were suddenly citing as evidence of white blowback. And remember Islamophobia? So we had this brief period of honeymoon, right, where you get this majority of the Congress standing out on the steps and singing God bless America and that sort of thing. It all looks great. And then the left starts saying this is Islamophobia. Any attack on Afghanistan is clearly Islamophobic, and the president shouldn't say anything about Muslims. And George W. Bush, whatever else you can say against him, was remarkably consistent in making it apparent that this was not an attack on Muslims. Yeah, and frankly, I would argue if there was controversy around it, it would have been Bush going too far the other way. I, I think he was saying some things that were demonstrably untrue that I won't get into right now about the actual tenets of the respective faiths. Right. And doing so for the interest of being overly politically correct on the issue. Um, on the left, you did have, which is kind of interesting still to this day, uh, Bill Maher was pretty mm-hmm. solid on Yes, it. yeah, and still. Yeah. Now, today you have some of these classical liberal free speech, free press guys that are diehard progressives like Matt Taibbi. They wouldn't have been on the good side of the Afghanistan thing or just a a policy of uh, realism around the nature of the jihadi threat. But, yeah, Bill Maher was. And there are a couple out there, you know, but that old kind of um, Democrat, the the anti-Soviet Democrat in the Cold War, your Charlie Wilsons, your Sam Nunns, Mm -hmm. those guys were pretty much gone post 9-11. That's right. The, the the centrist Democrats, other than John Kerry, when he was running for president, was reporting for duty. That's right. Um, was that the most cringy moment it, in the history of presidential politics? Like, I think Trump, like circling around Hillary on stage, like it that looked, was bizarre. That was scary. kind of funny. But when John Kerry went up and and did the salute and said reporting for duty, yeah, it there was no part of me that was like, oh, that's politically bad because everyone knows he's an anti-war, you right. know. Jane Fonda guy and it wasn't me going oh wow that's good people are going to think he's kind of a badass coming back mm-hmm, right from mm-hmm. Vietnam to mm-hmm. all I could think was, was oh my god please don't ever do that again <laughs> and please don't make me look at you jet skiing off the coast of Nantucket I... as just a regular athlete I just go play pickup ball in the park as I jet ski uh, windsurfing wind I think in Nantucket. Yes. yeah that's sorry yeah. windsurfing in Nantucket yes and even like I remember Mitt Romney's wife was going to the equestrian thing, <laughs> and it's fine. I'm not, I'm obviously not an anti elitist guy, like elite guy. Like I think people are rich and they do rich things, mm-hmm. and sure. it's fine. But when you, it's that whole deal we talk about, like with Romney going to the diner in Iowa, or Hillary trying to take the subway. Right. If you don't do something ever, like see most things that are kind of like with the people, middle class, lower, all this stuff. If I was ever running for office, which God knows I never would. But if I were, I could easily do all of it because it's just who I was not raised a rich kid. Right. Like I did legitimately play pickup basketball and sure. go do go to bad restaurants and take my kid to medieval times mm-hmm. like a mm-hmm. degenerate father and stuff like that. <laughs> like this this idea of a billionaire saying like, Oh yeah, I'm just out here doing what the guys do here on the street. It's just awkward. It it is. Anyways, we're so off subject. It's no, bad. but it's a everything's on subject. Well, I'm so gonna let's... I'm gonna have to do a write in vote. 
against Katie Porter now because um, she's convinced me that we need a black woman in that seat. What can you do? Uh, let's talk about Ro Khanna, who's also, and again, it's Ro, R-O, Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A, for those trying to map my, my voice at home. And... Um, We've talked about him before because he famously came out and was talking about uh, Twitter's role in banning the New York Post story on Hunter Biden's laptop. And you had far more background on that story than I did. I remember when it came up, I was surprised at how much you actually knew about his specific interaction with the folks at Twitter. He's apparently friends with a high-ranking official, was it the officer in charge of safety or something like that, and was telling him, don't block this story. Um, agree with you that um, you know this could this could you know turn some votes, but the fact is that's not your job to worry about that. You are supposed to be a free speech town square kind of thing. Don't do it. That blocking the story will make it more prominent than it deserves to be. Well, now we know that it actually deserves to be quite prominent. So maybe his his uh, prediction there was wrong. In fact, it was. But he is an interesting guy, and he's interesting to me, David, because. He almost he, he here's an interview with him that I want to talk to you about. It's an interview with a guy named Yosha Monk, uh, who I find a fascinating but wrong. Uh, generally, uh, he's a serious intellectual, written a bunch of books on deep philosophical stuff. Born in Germany, Jewish guy, moves to the to he goes to Cambridge and then to Harvard, I think, where he writes a book. Um, let me see if I can find the title here. It's the Age of Responsibility on the Role of Choice luck and personal responsibility in contemporary politics and philosophy. It's quite a heady headline. But the age of responsibility. Now, he's not coming from the David Bonson side of things. He's coming from the uh, Sam Bankman-Fried. Sam yeah, Friedman. I don't know. I don't know if that's fair. Well, in this sense that Sam's parents, we now know, Stanford attorneys, his mom writes that famous essay, you know, like, we, we got to end blame and guilt and responsibility because these are dangerous. Um, Where I would say let's end blame and guilt and irresponsibility by not being blaming, not being worthy of blame or guilty of things. That's right. They would say, no, don't blame people and don't hold guilt over them. That's right. And there's a part of that that runs through at a much more elevated level and with much finer language and nuance, but it's still in Yosha Monk's writing that yeah. you know at least as i've looked it over there's this quality that says sure 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 everybody should be responsible but the elevating res- personal responsibility to a kind of article of faith is damaging and dangerous because it ignores all the social context for the people who are doing the things they're doing which sounds remarkably like sam bankman freed's am i getting his name right I always- sam bankman freed but read read rose line here Okay, so here's it's it's an interview. This is a transcription. It's on Yosha Monk's podcast, which is called The Good Fight. Um, and uh, the, he he opens up the question the question with the, uh, the the interview with this Yosha Monk does. He says, "You call yourself a progressive capitalist. What does that mean?" And Connor responds, and I'll just quote the paragraph you know in full. He says. I believe in free enterprise and free markets, and not just because that leads to innovation and economic growth, but because it's about valuing human freedom. Wow. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Absolute truth. Uh, And I'm at this point in the interview when I'm listening to the podcast, I was like cheering like, wow, this guy's right on. Yeah. Listen to the evolution. When we, and he's still here, he is, he's doubling down on it now. When we want to transact with another individual, we shouldn't have to collect to get the collective body to approve such a transaction. But of course, this presupposes that people can participate in the market, right? 
And so, quote-unquote, progressive means we need to give people the healthcare, education, and nutrition to be able to participate in the market. How do we define markets that still value community yep. so you don't have unfettered movement of capital and goods in a way that leaves communities behind? He moves so fast off a first principle with which I completely agree into an area that begins to sound remarkably familiar to you and me from the progressive left. So I, I, I could go on, uh, and if you want, I will. But I, I think that's where I would start the conversation, David, because the rest of it is spinning off that idea that, but of course, we have to make the progressive claim that the markets are not fair or equitable in their treatment of some communities. I'm not sure that he even says that. I think that he does something a little bit simpler to dissect, equally egregious, but a little different than what you're suggesting. He affirms first principles, as you say. Uh, that markets um, have the incentives and the uh, right structure that facilitates innovation and growth, that um, you do not want collective bodies that are disinterested to approve the exchange of goods and services amongst individuals if you want human flourishing. So I'm on board with mm -hmm. all of that as a basic, the basic tenets of free enterprise. He goes on to say that um, you need people to be able to participate in the market for markets to be optimal, and I agree with that too. And then he would suggest that healthcare, education, nutrition are prerequisites to participate in the market. Uh, on a certain superficial level, mm -hmm. I'd assert that as sure. well. If people are dying, their uh, market um, uh, access, rate, yeah. their market access is declined. <clears throat> yeah, I don't uh, affirm it with education if he necessarily means something I suspect he might mean. Um, but as a general principle, literacy and um, greater access to information and the cognitive abilities to uh, create solutions and process and apply information, I think, is fair. Um, certainly nutrition. Okay, so that's all good. Now, I don't agree that the unfettered movement of capital leaves communities behind, but that is more of a jab. What he goes on to do is then link his viewpoint to Alexander Hamilton. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a very common thing. It should be being published even today. It might be tomorrow. But the um, I have an article coming out at Acton um, where I'm reviewing Glory Lou's new book about Adam Smith. And... Her new book, <clears throat> she's a Stanford PhD, uh, a lecturer at Harvard University. She's my guest coming out this week on Capital Record, which is our sister podcast also at National Review that I do every week on capital, capital markets. And I interview her, and her whole book is about the different revisionism of Adam Smith. Now, people have done this with Reagan. They've done it with any number of historical figures from Gandhi to Jesus, to take a historical figure and revise or change it to meet a modern day um, application of their own socio-political perspective. So revisionism <clears throat> around convenience and, and biases is hardly new. And it's really not that offensive to me. Um, it's it's somewhat can be somewhat intellectually dishonest, but it's it, you know, people are all prone to their own biases. What he's doing here with Alexander Hamilton is very dishonest. Um, but that's not the fatal flaw either. The fatal flaw is saying that choice and exchange and incentives and mutual cooperation and all the tenets of free enterprise 
are profoundly necessary to the cause of human flourishing. And by the way, choice and mutual cooperation and freedom and exchange are not good for education and healthcare. And I'm not going to tell you why. For some reason, with these two things, all the principles are different. That's right. That competition is not good for healthcare to drive prices lower and quality of goods and services higher. For some reason, it doesn't work with education to have greater educational opportunities. And of course, the presupposition, because he specifically says, if I remember correctly from what I read, yeah, that universal um, healthcare, universal mm-hmm. income, he's producing a policy recommendation um, around universal preschool, childcare, free public college, vocational school as a tenant to progressive capitalism. And yet, of course, this man is very bright, knows that it would not be free. It would come from the private sector. So he is suggesting something that is antithetical to his first principle. Precisely. And so when he starts to talk about the problem of what he calls unfettered capital markets, he specifically starts talking about antitrust law. He uh, footnotes Robert Bork's book. Uh, he doesn't mention the title of the book, but he, sa- he, he says everything about antitrust law got screwed up in 1978 with Bork's publication of a book called The Antitrust Paradox. I, don't, I, I haven't read the book, but I know well, a little left, bit about Left wingers love the book too. Well, it, it, all it did is say that antitrust is something that has to harm consumers. That's right. Yes, that and, there isn't anti-competitive behavior going on if it isn't anti-competitive. It's tautology. So, in talking about the problem of, uh, you know, he says Bork has one thing, one one metric, and that is are consumers better off, and that's his question about trusts, and. And Kana just dismisses that out of hand. He says, but there are many other factors to antitrust. And then he, he just offers a sample of questions. Do we want a multiplicity of perspectives in a society? Notice the word we. Do we want? Now, he's already said in his first principles, you shouldn't have to get a group together every time you decide yep. to have a personal transaction. And then he offers this exception that we have to have a group, apparently, because there's a we involved here. Do we want a multiplicity of perspectives in a society? Do we want jobs in our society? Do we want new entrants in different geographical regions in our society? Instantly propping up the notion that somehow we, as a crowd, have the right to gather around every single individual transaction and determine its value to us as a society, to me, to my community, to my particular grievance. But, But of course, they do have the right to do it. It's called through price discovery. Through, right? Uh, as economic actors, prices reveal. But here's the thing I'd love to know. Roe is in San Francisco area, That's right? That's right. Does he want to break up Google? I bet he ha- he certainly has opinions about high tech high tech, but no, I don't believe he. he See, that's seems the thing pretty... is that it, the, today, both on the right and left, the monopolistic outrage is geared towards um, a few big tech companies. That largely, in my mind, don't meet the legal definition of a monopoly um, by nature of being too big. Um, And then by Bork's criteria and the historically understood legal criteria of being anti-competitive, nobody thinks that Amazon's prices have gone higher because of their market value or that uh, consumers don't get better book recommendations and and buying, you know, uh, there is sort of advantages to being an Amazon customer. That's very obvious. Amazon still, though, is a very low percentage of total retail sales. 
if anything, it, it just on the size argument is going to be considered monopolistic. I think Google search is like 89% of the market, which actually does beg the question, who the hell are the other 11%? Yeah, really, I'm... Like someone saying. was telling me, I was making this point to someone the other day. I was having lunch with a client in New York City, and and I said it. And he goes, "Oh no, I use Bing for everything." And I started, wow. la I started laughing. <laughs> I thought he was being like, I was sarcastic. I didn't know Bing was still around. Yeah. And he goes, "No, no, no, Bing is great." I love it. And he was wow. serious. So I'm like, "Oh, okay, maybe I'm wrong." But Bing's making a big comeback, but that's a story for our Washington podcast. Um, so, are you, you know, talking about being the search engine, or, yeah. or Chandler Bing? <laughs> no, I don't know who Chandler Bing from who? Friends, Matthew Perry's oh, character. Oh, I'm so sorry, I missed that. I, I think that more people know who Chandler Bing is than being the search engine. Hmm. Google it. You're probably right. Did you see what I did there? Okay, <laughs> yeah, so let's move it on. All right. So um, I just want to point out that your assessment of who we is in this series of questions about yeah. what do we want is decidedly different. He is, as you said, vis-a-vis -vis education, he is interposing a principle, which is that we as a group of people outside a private transaction must mediate all transactions in the but, universe. But again, he's not um, irredeemable, no, right? I because agree. he is starting from the premise that markets do create wealth and are necessary to create wealth, growth, production, innovation. It's just he's making exception to his own principles. That's right. And so there should be hope for him. I think. I've been on a panel with him before, mm. um, and I was it, part of a discussion with him and Jeb Bush at a hedge fund conference two years ago now. It was after COVID. I was very impressed with the guy, but he's off on this, and this whole desired – this rebranding to my point about Alexander Hamilton. Uh, many have been doing this with Adam Smith for a while. Now, Gory Lou's point is that people on the right did it too. Milton Friedman, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Stigler, some of the Chicago school guys wanted to paint the great moral philosopher Adam Smith as a, a doctrinaire, laissez-faire secularist, which is also untrue. Right. But I think people wanting to recreate out of historical figures something to meet their ideological moment is really intellectually dishonest. Well, he's a very bright guy. His yes. citation, I mean, he talks about Jürgen Habermas and who yeah. outside of academia reads Habermas. Um, who's Really well, who in academia reads. <laughs> What's the old line? Uh, more often cited than read. Yes. Uh, all right. Uh, I, I, I could go on because I really do love hearing you think about this. But let's let's move on to something else you sent me. And uh, this will be, I think, we'll just wrap up here. Uh, you, you sent me a strategic, is it called Strategus? Strate Strategus Research. Yeah. yeah. They're an institutional research firm that I, is a big part of my business. Would you like to uh, sort of summarize what you sent me or can I read this? Go ahead and read because you have it in front of you, but I mean, sure. obviously I'm very familiar with this. And yeah, California, t this is from the report. California report on February 13th, uh, which would have been uh, Monday? Yeah, Monday. California tax revenues, a bellwether for the country, declined 42% year over year in January, led by a 50% decline in income tax revenues. I want to just underscore this. If I were listening to a podcast, I wouldn't be sure what I just heard. What you've heard is this major research company is saying California's tax revenues are dropping precipitously. It's quite rare, the report continues, to see a decline in tax revenues of this magnitude, even during COVID or the financial crisis. We have posited a more bearish view, bearish means negative, of state finances relative to the consensus, but what's happening in California is beyond even our initial view. Over the past 12 months, tax revenues are down more than 2%. This is before we get to April, 
the largest month for tax collections in which we're expecting a significant drop in tax revenues compared to last year. Here's the the big important line. We want to be clear. The magnitude of California's decline is larger than that of other states and cannot be explained by a lower stock market on its own. The weakness is likely being compounded by tech layoffs and the migration perhaps to Utah, of the highest income taxpayers out of the state. The state was too dependent on a small number of taxpayers who are leaving. Tax policy is killing the golden goose in the golden state. Um, and a bunch of charts that you sent with that show the, the sort of the, the disparity between Texas's state revenues, which are up, remarkably up, and California's, which are dropping precipitously. So essentially, um, you may be at a point, I don't want to call it early, where many of the predictions, uh, the people that we're calling, uh, you know, eight of the last two recessions type of thing um, are coming true, that there has been the belief that California was setting up a vulnerability in its revenue stream for a long time, the uh, never ending dependence on Silicon Valley, uh, the lack of diversification across industries and sectors, uh, the penalizing of high net worth people that were more and more relieving the state. And um, there was a sense in which I was very concerned about this fear mongering in 2012, 13, 14, because even though the uh, consequences of the tax increases that were passed, I knew were going to be awful for the state. Um, I didn't believe it would lead to an immediate revenue decrease because, first of all, you do get the sugar high of the higher revenue, right? If you raise the rates. And um, we were in a cyclical recovery at the time coming out of great financial crisis where real estate was coming back up, tax base was coming back up. There was a lot of activity in, in you had very low interest rates at the Fed and a lot of things happening in Silicon Valley with tech. And so people were saying, oh, yeah, they're going to lose everyone. Revenue is going to go down and it's going to be a disaster. And I said, guys, just wait. It's, 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 we're not there yet. Right now, out of the COVID moment, we do see the perfect storm. The interesting part about Strategus's report is that the gravity of the numbers year over year are worse than anyone could have thought. They're not like, oh, it's finally happened what we thought. It's worse. Mm -hmm. Is it going to maintain uh, at this level of continued drop? The ex-migration is the problem there. Um, there was a high base effect from the revenue from before. And and now if this these job layoffs in Silicon Valley continue – and you have a lot more people leaving Silicon Valley. Um, and we know the disaster in some of our big cities in our state between San Francisco and Los Angeles. This could get worse. Um, and yet, you know, there, there were people who predicted this before, too. And so I want to be careful about it. But I would say that we are in the moment right now where it's worth watching every data point coming out of the fiscal side of California. Because if you cross that lexicon where now... The only thing you can do to recapture revenue is either start taxing the hell out of your middle t class taxpayers, which is uh, the death spiral, or start begging for your rich people to come back. See, the rich people always go back to New York. Hmm. That's the thing people don't, mm -hmm. they, they mm -hmm. pretty much do. Mm -hmm. You had Andrew Cuomo saying like, I want to sit down and have a beer with these guys and ask them to come back. Um, they, they, they maintain some office presence. They split their tax paying. They've lost a lot of revenue. They've lost a ton of people to Florida. There's no doubt about it. But it's different in, um, in what California is starting to face now that is far more democratic as far as the socioeconomic groups that are leaving the state. That's a, that's a bigger and more permanent hit to revenue. Well, and also we've got a governor who and legislators who chastise companies that leave. They, they don't offer to sit down and have a beer. They tell them, you know, as Lorena Gonzalez did, Elon, Elon Musk, Musk, F off. F off. Yeah, right. right. Um, 
So, you know, I guess what I would say is that listeners who are interested can go to the California Policy Center website, and there's a story that we published on how to save your school district from the coming financial crisis. You know, this was an early uh, an early warning that we, <clears throat> pardon me, that we were sending out to local officials, um, which is basically that uh, the California School Board Association is warning school officials. Now, an economic downturn in California is going to affect every local government agency, not just school districts. But this piece was written for school board members who were told by the far left-leaning, very progressive California School Board Association uh, that a crisis is coming for the state's hundreds of schools. And their advice is you better start begging for handouts. Like this is what we have to do as a group, as school officials, is go to Sacramento and demand that they start to backfill the revenue losses we're seeing at the local level at a time when our unfunded liabilities for our government workers are already cresting magnificently. I mean, just going through the roof. So these guys are caught between a revenue downturn and a spike in their obligations. And uh, what we we tell people is like, basically, you've got to, this is where you always say, like, you know, if you really want change in California, you got to get out and vote. It's not enough to to think about these things. It's not enough to read about them or tweet about them. We have to persuade our friends and neighbors. Twitter is pretty, that should do it. Yeah, that you think? Yeah, okay, good. And Instagram. You're right. I I wasn't thinking about Instagram. I always think about Instagram as like before summer 2020 when we had racism, and then everyone was posting the black box image. Yes. And then we didn't have racism anymore. That's right. It was all over. But yeah, I mean, Twitter is getting there. But no, your voting might help. Yeah. Could help. Knowing what you're talking about. Yeah. So we point out that, you know, if, if you want to solve California's problems, you can start at the local level. You can start with your school board. You can tell your trustees that when unions start striking again for higher wages and better benefits and fewer hours, you've got to say no. Somebody has to hold the line somewhere. And we have to hold it in our school districts, our cities, our any kind of government agency that we interact with, counties, et cetera. Uh, and, and this may sound really obvious, but we're going to start seeing strikes. And I, I'll put one more story in here, David, and that's that LAUSD workers are going on strike again, uh, prepared to shut down schools in the second largest school district in the country. COVID? Uh, COVID was the other one where they shut down. No, is this one COVID too? No, this is just pay and benefits. This is uh, primarily driven by SEIU, the Service Employees yeah. International, and there's a political reason for this. You talked about Utah's political play with economic development. Here's what's going on in LAUSD. SEIU is hemorrhaging members. They're losing sure. revenue, therefore, and their influence is waning. So they need a strike. This is what the teachers did in L.A. They shut down the school for five days in 2019, forcing parents to make other arrangements and said this would never happen again. Then COVID hits a few, like what, a year later. And these same knuckleheads are out there shutting down the schools and demanding that they never return again. That they shouldn't be required even to sit on Zoom calls no. with their students. The district is hemorrhaging students and losing teachers. It's a bad, bad place. Um, but now but they want more money. They want more money. And yeah. the board is going to have to step up and say, enough, enough of this. Yeah. Um, but will they? Only if residents actually you know, show up. Show up. So um, we have so much more we could talk about, but that's all the time we have today. And I'm even going to skip the long uh, wind down here and just say I want to thank our friends Lucas Klaus, Brian Tong, Glenn Hall, all our friends at CPC, and also uh, Sarah Schutte over at National Review Podcast. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks also to Metalachi, the LA-based Mariachi metal band, for our music, La Revolución Continua, en la semana próxima. Oh,